All right, so today this is from Newman chapter one. So this is the first chapter in your textbook. And it's an intro to biomechanics. I've, um, at the beginning of all my lectures, I just list the course objectives. I'm not gonna go over those, but it's related to the course objectives from your syllabus. Actually, before I do that, I should talk about the syllabus. So we're not going to go into content yet. So um, here's the syllabus again. This is on D2L for those of you folks that have access. For those that you don't, you will again at the end of the day. I apologize for that confusion. This is the first time we have two different sections and haven't quite sorted it all out yet. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff on here. It's a three-credit hour class. The lecture hours and the lab hours differ because of the sort of the way the class is split up, but that's technically true. Um, course topics, all this stuff doesn't make a whole lot of difference. So your basic concepts, these are your learning objectives, the basic concepts of biomechanics that I will list at the beginning of the lecture so you guys can see what part of the course we're talking about for each lecture. Um, and it may give you an area to focus on for your studying. However, I would say that all the content is definitely tested and relevant. So, um, but we just had to sort of list it out as far as our accreditation and giving you guys information stuff. So there's a whole lot of stuff on there. Um, that's based by basic biomechanics, these are tissue mechanics, um, get down to other stuff. What you guys probably want to know, there's obviously your assignments, you have five exams, again those are going to be your take home exams that you guys can take whenever you want. Um, and at the end of the semester there's a practical exam, so when we get into the functional anatomy section, we'll have labs where we do palpation, trying to find different anatomical landmarks through feeling on each other, you guys will do a lot, of, spend a lot of time on that in lab. Um, and that's going to be a pass or fail practical worth 5% of your grade. So you come in with a partner and we'll talk about it when we get there. But you draw a card and we say we want you to find this anatomical landmark on your partner and you have to do that. And we're going to ask you a couple questions about it. Um, and that'll be during finals week. And then the rest of that, the other five exams are weighted equally at 19%. So you get your total for 100% for the whole course. Um, there's your grading scale. And you guys all got student handbooks, correct? So this information is just replicated or taken right straight from your student handbook. Um, we expect you guys to be here. And if anyone um, has any special needs related to testing, you can go ahead and let me know or Dr. Williams will be glad to accommodate you however is appropriate when we're with working in the testing center across the hall. Um, don't cheat. And here's your text, well there's your main textbook is the Newman text. And then there's a bunch of other supplemental materials you can purchase if you like, but this is where we're primarily gonna work off of is the Newman text. So that's your syllabus. Now on to the lecture. So like I said, this is course is sort of broken up. The first half is basic sort of generic biomechanics, then tissue mechanics, then we get into sort of functional anatomy section. We have about four weeks and I think six or seven lectures to go over the introduction to biomechanics. And when I was in grad school, I took a two semester course on introduction to biomechanics. So if you want to think of how abbreviated this is going to be, it's very, very, very abbreviated. Um, so we're just, this is gonna be a very general overview of biomechanics and there's a whole lot more that we can go into. Obviously we're not going to do that. If you guys have specific interests, um, once you get graduate, you can take other courses in biomechanics that are interesting. Um, and I think it's very interesting, but I spent years and years and I still continue to do research in this area, so I think it's interesting and fun, but not everyone does. 
Again, your course objectives like we talked about. And today's going to be a lot about describing terminology and understanding the terminology around biomechan biomechanics. Um, feel free to stop me whenever you guys have any questions. That's not a problem at all. So kinesiology is really the science of human movement. Kinesis is movement. Um, Latin analogy is a study of, so it's a study of movement in some capacity. I think kinesiology is probably a good term for the second half of this course because that's really what we're doing. We're looking at how you guys move. And the beginning basic biomechanics is partially related to movement, but it's partially related to forces, which is not really kinesiology in and of itself. Um, so we could name this course kinesiology or biomechanics or functional anatomy, and it would kind of all be the same. Um, and biomechanics is the application of physics principles to biological systems. So bio meaning life and mechanics is the physics of bodies subjected to forces or displacement. So we're either studying movement or we're studying how things move um, related to forces or what, or what acts upon them. Now applied kinesiology, this is tricky because some people refer to, who hasn't heard of applied kinesiology before? Has anyone taken a kinesiology class before? Okay, but not applied kinesiology. Okay, so applied kinesiology is treatment, a treatment system which is based on the notion that organ dysfunction is accompanied by specific muscle weakness. So an applied kinesiologist says that, for example, and I don't know if this is the, the correct association, but if I have cirrhosis of my liver or I have a liver problem, my shoulder is going to be weak. And that when my liver problem resolves or it gets treated, then my shoulder strength is going to resolve or is going to improve. Um, I refer to that as bunk. There's other terms that you can use for that as well. Um, but some people talk about themselves as kinesiologists and some kinesiologists work in physical therapy clinics as sort of techs or assistants. Um, and then there's applied kinesiologists and those are people that are gonna treat your organs through the musculoskeletal system or treat the musculoskeletal system through your organs. Um, and there really isn't a whole lot of scientific rationale behind that. So don't get confused when people talk about themselves as an applied kinesiologist. Um, I'll just leave it at that. So actual kinesiology, um, again, is going to be the study of movement, and it's based on Newtonian principles, which are the basics for biomechanics and the biomechanical analysis. So that's Sir Isaac Newton. We're going to talk about him in the next lecture. Um, and it's funny when you go into Google Images and you put somebody's name in, especially like a historical person where it actually isn't photographs. And you guys will see, so this is a picture of him, and he looks like he's kind of got like an afro thing hanging down because they all wore wigs back in the day, but he looks like a regu re relatively regular guy in this picture, and then sometimes you see him and he's like 250, 300 pounds, um, and he's just like loaded, and maybe he put had a, I don't know, eating binge at some point in his life or something, I don't know. Or he lost a lot of weight, maybe he did Adkins back in the day. Um, but the portraits of him vary greatly. You wonder how good the artists were, right? So what is biomechanics or what is incorporated in biomechanics? If you go to um, a biomechanics conference, you're going to go and you're going to see a whole lot of things that are not related to human movement or functional anatomy. Um, and then you're going to see things that are related to human movement, but it's going to be very specific. So biomechanics can include fluids, which we're really not going to talk about, just movement of water and how it moves. 
Um, and then it's going to go into solids. Obviously, we're going to talk about solids because we're going to talk about human movements. So solids um, and bones, rigid and deformable, deformable bodies. And we're going to assume that the body is rigid and there's going to be statics and dynamics. Statics, and we'll talk about these. But we're going to spend a lot of our time um, down here looking at the statics and dynamics. We're going to do some math around the movement and the position of the bodies, of parts of our bodies. You could do the whole body, but it gets very complicated. So we're just going to look at specific segments of our body. We talk about static and dynamic analyses. And then kinetics and kinematics, which we'll also talk about coming up. So biomechanics is very, very broad. And we're going to talk about, even though this looks like a big square at the bottom, we're going to talk about a very small portion of it. And even within biomechanics, within human movement, there's biomechanics studying the way that the blood moves in your heart. Um, and there's biomechanics looking at the way that um, ions cross membranes. So it can be very specific, and we're not going to talk you know, about that stuff. We're going to talk about more gross movement of your body, your arms, your legs, your spine, those types of things. Kinematics, so this is just breaking down from the statics and dynamics. We have kinetics and kinematics underneath each of those headers. Kinematics is the branch of mechanics that describes motion of the body without regard to the forces or torques which produce this movement. So when I'm talking about kinematics, it's only the movement that's occurring. We don't care how it's occurring or why it's occurring. We're just looking at how it moves and why it moves. And so if you're looking at kinematic analysis, what you're looking at is how does something move? And I just pull this. I like to pull some videos from YouTube because I know you guys spend your weekends drinking and pulling up YouTube videos at home. Um, so I do the same thing, except my videos are related to nerdly matters and you guys are probably to grossly matters. Um, right? So you're laughing, you know. Um, so this is just a kinematic analysis of an individual doing a pole vault. And what they're using is they're using um, Simi-Motion, which is a 3D motion analysis system that allows you to look at how somebody moves. And again, we're not looking at the muscles and how they're working. We're not looking at the forces that are being created um, or causing the movement. We're just looking at how this individual moves. And what you get usually is a model of some sort. So here's the individual. This is just going to be a regular video. Um, and then they're going to overlay a simulated um, computer model of him. So obviously, he's pole vaulting on a track indoor. And they're doing some calculations of these joint angles. And then here you go into the motion analysis. So they're plotting um, angles. This is probably going to be range of motion. It's movement of the center of gravity. So this is the movement of the center of mass of his body, or how his body is going to project over the pole vault bar. Was anyone here ever a pole vaulter? No? OK, good. So I can make all this stuff up. Um, so with the pole vaulter, you want to, as you can see, he's going to bend the bar here. And he wants to keep as much of his body below the bar as possible while still getting over it. Because he doesn't want to overshoot because then he works too hard. So you want to work um, just high enough to get your body over. And here you can see this is a representation of his entire body and the movement that his whole body is going to go through as he tries to go up over the bar. Obviously, it's super slow motion. You can see him. And you can see in this corner here, so that's a skeletal model of his body. as they touch down and go over the bar. And let's see. So there's going to be his foot, his legs, his trunk, and his arm. And like I was talking before, he doesn't want to be 
way up here because he doesn't need to go that high. So he's trying to keep himself as low as possible, but still go over the bar, obviously, without knocking it over, and that forts a successful pole vault. So this is a kinematic analysis, meaning that we don't care what muscles he's using. We don't care how much force or how much strength he's needing to get over the bar. We're just looking at the movement that he uses to go over the bar. So kinematics is just the movement, that's all. Everybody good there? Okay. Um, kinetics, so we're still talking under statics and dynamics. Um, so now we're talking about kinetics. Kinetics is the branch of mechanics that describes the effect of forces on the body. So now we're trying to look at your muscle's ability to produce force and the forces that are affecting your body, which is most of the time in clinical practice we're talking about gravity. So how does gravity affect um, your ability to do things? Or do you have to lift certain loads for your job or for your um, activities of daily living? Do you have a little kid that you have to carry around with you because that's going to take some force on your part to move that individual? Or do you have to move boxes as part of your job or something along those lines? So it's the effect of forces on the body. And here is another YouTube video. And what this is looking at is the effect of this individual's body weight on a treadmill while they're running. So it's the force of their body. Remember, kinetics is only forces. So it's the force of their body. So this is a kinetic analysis looking at this individual's body weight while they're running. And this is super slow-mo. And what you're going to see is this red dot's going to go across, so it's going to be looking at time across the x-axis. And this is going to be the individual's body weight across the y-axis. So when someone lands while they're running, the force of their body weight is going to be greater than the total force of their body weight because they're coming down with some speed. Um, it probably will go up to, I don't know what it is, probably two and a half or three times this individual's body weight is the force that's going through his foot every time he strikes the treadmill here. And this is super slow-mo, so we can take a look at it, and I can loop it so you guys can take a look. So you can see his foot strikes there, and there's a certain amount of force that's related to the amount of his body weight that comes up there. His foot strikes there, his body weight up to two and a half times his body weight, and then as it comes off, it drops back down. Take a look at that again. So this graph on the y-axis is that individual's body weights. So when he gets to probably right about, I don't know if I'll be able to stop it. At this point in time, we'll just stop here. This is 1.7 times this individual's body weight. And when he gets up to the peak, it's 2.3, 2.4 times his body weight. That's the force that's coming down through his foot while he's running, um, wearing shoes on this treadmill. So the effect is going to change when he takes his shoes off and depending on how you land while you're running. So you can see, and I'll play this again, but this individual is going to land, hasn't landed yet, but you can see that he's going to land on his heel. And when you land on your heel, you have a different forces that go through your leg as opposed to when you land on your midfoot or when you land on your toes. And so is anyone here a runner? couple runners. So folks that are wearing those new five finger shoes, they're not that new anymore, but the five finger shoes, what that forces you to do is not land on your heel because it hurts and it changes the way your body reacts to the forces that are going through your leg. 
and depending on how you run and if you're injured or not, it can be beneficial or it can be not beneficial. But what I intended to show you guys was the forces associated with this individual's running. And this is just an example of a kinetic analysis because we're just looking at the force. Now what I talked about was how he landed, whether it landed on his heel or on his foot. That would be what? That we talked about before. Kinematics, right? Because that's the movement that's occurring, but here we don't care about the movement that's occurring. We just care about the forces that are resulting from the movement. So that's the difference between kinematics and kinetics. Kinematics is the movement, kinetics is the forces. Now most of the time when people study this, they study it together because you want to know what's causing the movement and you want to know how it affects the movement. So usually you study them together, but that's not always the case and sometimes it's not always feasible. So. Um, we're going to talk about them separately, but they're often done together utilizing similar technologies that you guys saw there. Um, within kinematics in the human body, there's two types of motion that can occur when you break it down. Um, and that is rotation and translation. And rotation is when a rigid body moves about a pivot point, which is the axis of rotation, in a circular path. Hello. Um, and translation is when all parts of the body move in the same and parallel direction to every other part of the body. And we'll talk about each of these. So within rotation, remember rotation is uh, moving about a pivot point or an axis of rotation. So an axis of rotation or the pivot point is the location movement where the body movement is minimal. Within the human body, this is usually found near the joints, um, but it's not always the case. So here we have an example of a knee joint, and that red circle in your femoral condyle is designed to indicate the axis of rotation. <clears throat> and as you move your shank from an extended to a flexed position, that is going to be the place where the least amount of movement occurs, and therefore that is your axis of rotation. Do you guys know flexion and extension? Oh, that's already. Flexion is what movement? Making an angle smaller. What defines flexion? Does anyone know? Bringing like a body segment closer to the another body segment. Close. What's your name? Britt. Britt? Yeah. Okay. The definition of flexion is any movement toward the fetal position. And so extension is therefore opposite of that. Um, so as this individual comes from an extended position to a flexed position, there's going to be a place where there's a minimal amount of motion that occurs. Um, that's going to be your axis rotation. And here you can see it's right near the joint. Um, it's going to be on the femoral side, so it's going to be within the distal aspect of the femur. Um, but that's going to be your axis of rotation. And rotation occurs in a plane perpendicular to the axis of rotation. So we talked about the axis of rotation, and perpendicular just means at a 90 degree angle to that. So when you have your director's clapper, you're going to have the movable portion here, and the axis of rotation is going to be where within that clapper? At the hinge, right? Right here. And that is going to be, um, what direction is that axis going to go? Right, straight into the border, straight out towards you guys, right? And then the movement is going to be 90 degrees perpendicular to that, so the movement's going to be up and down here. 
So the axis of rotation would be in the hinge here, either coming out of the board or into the wall there. Um, and then the perpendicular is where the movement's going to be. The same thing occurs with the bicycle here. So this, this got pegs. You guys remember pegs? So that, bike, that wheel's got some pegs on it. I used to kick it with some pegs. My little huffy. <laughs> you could pop wheelies like, and hold them. That was awesome. Anyways, so this has got some pegs on it, but that's gonna, the pegs will be your axis of rotation. And then perpendicular to that, the wheel is going to go around and rotate about that axis of rotation around those pegs. Now it's nice and clean when we're talking about things that are man-made. There's one axis of rotation that just moves right about that. But the human body, um, the axis of rotation changes depending on the position of the joints and the joint surfaces. So joint surfaces aren't all congruent so that you just have it moving around one joint, but the joint positions or the joint surfaces are uneven. So the axis of rotation as you go throughout a range of motion is going to change. So here what I've shown, this is going to be your tibial plateau. So this is the top of the tibia at the knee joint. Um, this is the same thing here. This is going to be the top of the tibia here, and this is going to be your femur at the knee. So proximal, um, it's going to be your femur. This one's going to be your tibia. And if you look at that joint surface, it's not perfectly round. It's not perfectly flat, but it's kind of funky shaped. There's ridges. There's indentations. Um, and so when you go to rotate about that joint surface, it's not, your axis of rotation isn't going to be at one point, but it's going to be at multiple points depending on how these joint surfaces line up from the femur and the tibia and what range of motion that knee position is in. So within the human body, the axis of rotation is going to change, but it's going to be pretty close to its original position. And we'll talk about that later um, in the lecture today or maybe on Thursday, depending on if we get there or not today. Um, but within the human, the axis rotation moves depending on the joints and the range of motion that they're going through. Now we also talked about translation. Again, the definition is all parts of the body move in the same direction to every other part of the body. And you can have a rectilinear translation. So I have this triangle here. And there's angles A, B, and C on there. And for rectilinear translation, that means it's moving in a straight line. And so the relationship between A, B, and C doesn't change. And they're all in a straight line relative to one another. So there's no rotation that occurred. Um, and it just occurred across at a straight line. As opposed to a curvilinear translation, which occurs not in a straight line. And so you can see here, point A comes over, but it also goes down to A prime, B over and down, and C over and down um, to C prime. So rectilinear is in a straight line, curvilinear is not in a straight line or not in a straight path. Now how does this apply to humans and human movement. So when an individual walks, their head goes up and down a little bit, right? Because at some point in time, they're going to have two feet on the ground, but they need to propel themselves forward, so they need to push off and propel themselves up. And so there's going to be some up and down sway, which is graphed here, of their head as they walk across a straight line. Now one interesting thing is if you were to look at different individuals, obviously everyone's going to have a different amount of curvilinear movement or translation that occurs depending on how tall they are and things like that. But 
Anyone here a hurdler? I'm going to ask a lot of questions. Hurdler? Hurdler? So good hurdlers have what? What's that? I don't know. You don't know? Wasn't she wasn't good. <laughs> Do we have any good hurdlers in the classroom? <laughs> All right. So a good hurdler has minimal displacement of their head because that means all their forces are going in the forward direction. If you're utilizing your energy to go up and over the hurdle, you're taking away energy that you could be using to move forward. So a good hurdler is going to minimize the curvilinear translation of their head as they go down the, the hurdle path, whether it's 110 or 400 or whatever. Um, whereas a not as good hurdler is going to have a bigger distance because they're going to be having to use more force to go over the hurdle um, than they are to go forward. So to understand curvilinear translation relative to this individual's head as they're walking down the street. Can anyone tell me or give me an example of a rectilinear translation utilizing the same thing? So an individual's head, how about a rectilinear translation? Remember we, before we talked about oh, wrong way. kicking it with the pegs? Right, so if I'm rolling on my bike and I'm standing on my back pegs and someone's got measuring the movement of my head, right, what's happening? Is I'm rolling along? Is it going up or down? Nope. No, just going straight, right? So that's going to be your rectilinear translation. So you, it's probably not going to be during normal anatomical movement, walking or running. It's going to be utilizing some sort of mechanism um, to move you otherwise. So if you're on an escalator, you're going to have rectilinear movement, so it's going to be straight line. It's not going to be curved because you're just going straight up. So that would be rectilinear versus curvilinear translation related to sort of human movement. Does everyone understand that? Okay. So now we talked about sort of whole body translation. Now we're going to talk about anatomical translation related to specific joints. Um, and joint translation occurs simultaneously with rotation to maintain joint contact. And this is a good thing because otherwise every time you took a step or bent your elbow or flexed your finger, you would dislocate those joints and that would be just painful and messy. So here we have your knee again, anatomical position, so you're in full extension, you're standing up. This is gonna be your femur, patella, kneecap, and then your tibia. So you're standing there and you want to flex your knee so you wanna sit down. For your standing position, you wanna go ahead and sit down. So what you're going to do is you're going to flex your knee, right? So this is designed to show you guys flexing the knee. Um, and so I'm going to rotate in order to flex my knee. But if I don't have translation at the same time, if I'm going to rotate here, if I keep rotating, what's going to happen? It's going to fall off. That's bad news. If your patients do that, send them to the doctor. It's bad news. So we need to have translation at the same time in order to maintain those joint surfaces in contact with one another, right? So if I'm rolling backwards, I'm rotating backwards, I'm going into knee flexion, what translation has to occur in order for me to maintain joint contact at the tibiofemoral joint at your knee? I need to have translation forward, right? So I can maintain the femur in contact with the tibia. So that's just an example of how joint translation has to occur with rotation in order to maintain your joints to be stable. Now we'll talk more about specifics of this um, later on in the lecture today, but I just wanted to sort of introduce that now. Everybody okay? Good deal. No dislocators? Am I dislocating joints? 
All right, all right. A few, all right. Four, nice. Any more than four? Cool. We'll talk about those when we get into class. All right. More terminology. Osteokinematics means what? Kinematics is? Movement. Osteo is? Bones. How about some bone movement up in here? Um, so it's a description of movement of the bones, usually relative to one another. So how does this bone move relative to another bone? Um, the movement described relative to one of the three cardinal planes. You guys know the three planes? Do you guys talk about this? Good. So the sagittal plane is going to be anterior to posterior. So the sagittal plane is here, um, indicated by this line going through um, front to back in this individual's body. The frontal or the coronal plane is side to side, indicated here um, by the frontal plane. So it goes medial to lateral. And the transverse plane cuts the individual in half here. So those are the three cardinal planes to describe how bones move relative to one another, and we can discuss bone movement relative to those three cardinal planes. Now bones can move through those um, in what's known as six degrees of freedom relative to those cardinal planes. And there's three angular movements and three translational movements. So there's three rotations and three translations that can occur when we're describing how bones move. So we're talking about rotation. There's different rotations that we're going to talk about the shoulder and um, it's hard to show on a skeleton without a shoulder. Anybody got one from their bag in here? <laughs> okay. I got a lot of hip and pelvis. Everything, I know. Oh, okay. It's my lovely assistant, Dr. Williams. <laughs> um. <laughs> All right, well, forward will we got. See, I thought I was all prepared. I ducked my head in. I said, oh, look, there's a skeletal model. I'm sweet. Not so much. Anyways, um, so rotation about three axes movement. You guys said you already know this stuff, so that's good. I'm going to review it anyways, because I'm not going to assume that anybody knows anything. Um, so flexion extension. We talked about flexion being movement toward what? Fetal position, good. So this individual had an intact glenohumeral joint. And I'm going to move toward the fetal position. <laughs> Never happened. So intact glenohumeral joint, we'll just say, move forward toward the fetal position for flexion, which is which way? Humerus goes which direction? Toward you guys, right? So flexion, extension. And that's occurring about an axis which is in which plane? No, movement's in the sagittal plane, right? Yeah, the axis is in the frontal plane, so it's a medial lateral axis. So the axis is this way. So relative to the individual, medial lateral. It's a medial lateral axis. Flexion is in the in section in the sagittal plane. Everybody okay there? Um, what else we got? AB and abduction. Okay. So now we have abduction, which goes which direction? Yep, out to the side, so woo, out to the side, abduction, and then back in, adduction, correct? AB away, AD toward. So abduction, and the axis is? It's the anterior and posterior axis, which is lines up with the sagittal plane. Everyone okay with that so far? All right, so now we have internal external rotation. 
which is going to be what's interrotation. It's going to be hard to show here. So if we bend his elbow, it's going to be easier to see. Interrotation comes this way, right? External rotation goes away. And that is about which axis? Transverse. Transverse axis, which is a superior and inferior axis. So it's going along the length of the humerus. And you're going to rotate about that axis for internal and external rotation. Are there any questions on flexion extension, ABA deduction, international rotation, or the axes about which those rotations occur? Cool. Okay, now we can also translate about these three axes. And to translate, it's good to have a dislocated shoulder when you have a skeletal model. So, perfect. This is how I planned it. So if I'm going to translate, I can have an anterior-posterior translation. So I can translate anterior, or I can translate posterior, right? So translation is just going to be sliding in the bone. So slide anterior, slide posterior. I'm so exaggerating. It's not going to translate that much. That would be a dislocation, right? Just a little so you guys can see what's actually going on there. So translate anterior, translate posterior from the side. So this is anterior, translate anterior, translate posterior. I can translate superior, inferior, and I can translate medial or lateral. And when you're talking about the shoulder, a medial translation would be compressing the joint surfaces or squeezing them together, and a lateral translation would be distracting or separating those joint surfaces. So usually when you're talking about six degrees of freedom, you're talking about these movements and then these translations, and usually the last translation that's a little bit confusing is going to be joint compression or joint distraction. Where joint compression, you bring the joint surfaces together, and joint distraction, you take those joint surfaces away from one another. Everybody good? Yes? Yeah, Nick. Uh, back to the... Did you say Nick? Nick. Cool. Nick. All right. The internal and external. Yep. When you change it to where you're up here, yep. the complete axis and all changes that you're describing it with that you tell me so here I am my axis is still going to be along the long axis of the humerus right yeah. but now my humerus is in which plane it's in the transverse it was in the transverse plane down here so if I come up here the humerus is actually going to be in the frontal there you go so the humerus is going to be in the frontal plane then and then rotation is going to occur this way now. So yes, it does based on change based on anatomical positioning. But we're just talking about anatomical position to start with. Good point. Any other questions? If you guys um, review that in your book, Newman does a good job of describing that textually. That can maybe help to reinforce what we just talked about. Um, unless you guys are sweet, then we're all good. Um, Osteokinematics, so it's movement of the bones relative to the cardinal planes. We talked about that. And what this is showing um, is that, so I can go into a flexed knee position either by moving my tibia and moving toward the fetal position going into flexion or by moving my femur and going into the knee flex position. So I can either have distal movement Distal meaning further away from the center of the body, right? You guys know distal and proximal. Proximal meaning closer to the center of the body. So I can have distal segment movement where I flex my knee by moving my tibia because my tibia is further away from the center of my body than my femur is. Or I can have knee flexion by moving my femur on my tibia, which is proximal movement. And then your distal segment is not moving. 
Both of those are going to get you to the same position of knee flexion. You just either do it through movement of the tibia or movement of the femur. And that is commonly referred to as open chain or closed chain movement. So open chain movement is when the distal segment is free to move. And so here I have a picture of a shot putter. Um, this is a little bit older because I don't think they wear leotards anymore. Um, but I wouldn't tell him that he didn't look good in a leotard. Though um, so when he's going to do that shot put, his distal segment being his arm is going to be the one that's moving and that's free to move. So that's going to be open chain movement because his distal segment, his arm, is free to move as he goes to throw that ball or put that shot. Is that appropriate terminology? Put the shot? Or is it shot to put? It must be put the shot. I don't know. Um, closed chain movement is a situation in which the distal segment is fixed. Um, and this becomes a little bit confusing because depending on where you read these definitions, closed chain movement sometimes refers to the distal and proximal segment being fixed, which is very difficult to do. So in this class, I'm going to talk about it, and we're going to talk about it as the distal segment is fixed, and I will often refer to that as a weight-bearing position. Um, so this individual, again, he's going to talk about shoulder movement. Distal segment, his hand is fixed as he goes to do that perfect push-up. So the distal segment is weight-bearing or in closed chain, as opposed to open chain where his hand would be moving around, or non-weight-bearing. Everybody good there? Why don't we take five minutes and you guys can gather yourselves and we'll reconvene. Joint motion. Joint motion, good. So arthro is joint, kinematics is movement, so it's joint movement. So the move, uh, definition of motion that occurs between the articular surfaces of a joint. And you can have rolling or rotation, like we talked about earlier, and you can have sliding or gliding, which is going to be the translation. So you're going to have a rotation and a translation, and again, they usually occur at the same time. Definitions of these. So when we're talking about arthrokinematics, we're going to talk about a roll. And in rolling multiple points on one surface, contact multiple points on another surface. So in the picture up here, you have a wheel going down an incline, or a decline, I suppose. And multiple points of that wheel are going to contact multiple points of that slope. So that's the definition of a roll. Multiple points contacting multiple points elsewhere. A slide or a glide, by definition, a single point on one surface contacts multiple points on another surface. So I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and this was what it looked like from November till March. Big sheet of ice with little kids wearing hoods and scarves and all those types of things. Um, but when my mom pulled me around on a sled, that one point contact in the sled would contact multiple points of the ice. So that's the definition of a slide or a glide. So a single point contacting multiple points on another surface. So the single contact point is a sled and multiple contact points along the ice that she would drag us along and tell us to shut up because it was too cold for her to deal with us. And then spin, a single contact point on one surface contacts a single contact point on another surface. So I have here a top or a dreidel more specifically, and you have one contact point, and if it maintains stationary, it's gonna be one contact point that it's contacting on the other surface. So a roll, a glide, and a spin, those are the definitions that we'll use, and we're gonna relate that to arthrokinematics or joint movements. So looking at rolls and glides and spins, so we talked earlier at the tibiofemoral joint, or the knee joint, 
how we can have rotation or rolling, but we also need to have the gliding or the sliding in order to maintain joint congruency, right? The joints stay in relation to one another. So I can have a roll. So this looks like that knee is going into extension through femoral movement. So my femur is going this way as I'm extending my knee, and I have rolling that occurs at the joint. Roll, by definition, is multiple points contacting multiple points, right? So multiple points of my femur contacting multiple points of my tibia as I roll and have those joint surfaces change their relationship to one another. You're going to have multiple contact points that allow that. Now, if I don't have an associated slide or a glide, I'm going to dislocate the joint, right? So I need to have a sliding that occurs, which is going to be one point contacting multiple points. Um, so this is very common and can be applied to the majority of extremity joints in the body, so the arms and legs. Most of your joints are going to act with a, a roll and glide that will define on how that will work relative to one another in a couple minutes. Um, spin is less common, but anatomically the most, the best example of spin is the radial head. So the radial head is in your forearm, and it's going to contact your humerus, and as I supinate and pronate, or I turn my palm up and down, the radius is going to spin on the capitulum, or the distal part of the humerus. So this radius, as I go into pronation, is going to spin in one direction. So it's one contact point on the radius, contacting one point, contact point on the humerus, and it's just going to spin back and forth as I pronate or supinate my forearm. So one on one, roll multiple on multiple, slide or glide, one on multiple. Are okay with those? Within the body, most joint surfaces um, are curved, so it's not going to be two straight planes moving on one another the vast majority of the time. There's going to be curved with a convex and a concave surface. Um, and when you're talking about arthrokinematics, you're going to talk about the joint movement described as the roll, slide, or glide, and spin about those joint surfaces. And there are specific rules which govern how it rolls and how it glides based on the shape of those joints. So here what we see is we are going to have a convex, we'll call that proximal segment, and a concave distal segment. Is everyone okay there? Concave and convex. So this is a concave contacting the convex. As the convex segment rolls, you need to have an associated slide like we talked about, and that's going to be in the opposite direction. So convex movement, or convex rotation, arthrokinematically is associated with a slide in the opposite direction in order to maintain joint congruency, right? Because if I tried to roll here, or I tried to roll, that joint, generic joint, is going to dislocate unless I have an associated slide in the opposite direction to maintain joint contact. So when you have convex, so this is referred to as convex on concave. So the convex, convex shape of this proximal joint is moving on the relatively stable concave distal surface as the convex moves on the concave. So this is convex on concave arthrokinematics. Your roll and your slide are going to be in opposite directions. Now you can think about that, and this is what you guys will probably do on your practical when we ask you about it. So when everybody take their hand and go like this, and you're making yourself a concave surface, everybody make a fist, make yourself a convex surface, and go, Arr! I didn't hear any noises. 
There you go. All right. So now when I go to roll, so I'm going to roll. This may be my convex on concave, right? Convex movement. As I go to roll, I'm starting to dislocate that joint, right? Bad news, bad news. I have to slide in the opposite direction. So roll and slide are opposite for convex on concave. So when I ask you on your practical, what's the convex and concave rule, you guys are all going to go, Arr! and then do something like this, OK? Yes? Now, in reality, these are happening simultaneously, though, right? That is correct. So it's not, yeah, this is happening at the same time. Um, but just for demonstration points, it's easier sure. to show them separately. And your name? Daniel. Daniel, OK. Um, and spin, convex and concave is just as it sounds like, so it's just going to stay one point contact in one point. So theoretically, there's one point which approximate this axis that goes from superior to inferior, which is going to rotate about that axis. So primarily when we're talking about convex and concave, we're not talking about spin, because it's really the same, whether it's concave on convex or convex on concave. I know I said that quickly, so if you need me to slow down, that's fine. I talk quick, which is why people like my podcasts, because then they can stop and go back in those types of things. Okay, so now we're going to talk about concave movement on convex. So here we have our concave surface going to be moving on our convex surface. So this is going to be distal segment moving on the proximal segment. The distal segment is going to be concave, the proximal segment convex. And what you're going to see in this situation in order to maintain congruency is that the roll and the slide have to move in the same direction. <coughs> so if everyone can take their hands again, and get pumped up. Arr! Come on, at least one person. There we go. Right. <laughs> Less than enthusiastic. He had Dr. Arnold for two hours this morning, I understand. Okay. So I'm going to roll. So it's going to be concave surface, right? Concave moving on convex Arthur kinematics. So my concave surface is going to start to roll. As I start to slide, I'm going to have to maintain contact, or I'm gonna have to, as I start to roll, excuse me, I'm going to have to slide in the same direction to maintain contact. And so in order to make contact, I'm going to be sliding. So if this hand moves, it's going to go like this. In order to move this hand, I have to come back with it. So it's just going to be the opposite as it was for convex on concave. And concave on convex, they go in the same direction. The roll on the slide or the roll on the glide, use those two interchangeably, go in the same direction. And spin, just like I talked about before, doesn't make much difference whether it's concave or on convex. It's just going to rotate about the long axis of that rotation or of that um, Roll. All good? All right. So now we're back to the knee joint. So that was sort of generic joint. Now we're at the knee joint. And we're going to talk about knee joint extension. So this is my starting position. I'm going into extended position. So I'm going to have proximal movement of the femur on a fixed tibia. So is that open chain or closed chain? Closed chain, right? Because the distal segment is not moving, so it's going to be closed chain movement. And I'm going to have the concave on convex or convex on concave? Convex on concave. So your distal femur is going to be your convex surface, and your tibial plateau is going to be your concave surface. So I have convex moving on concave. As I go into extension, I'm going to have a roll and slide in opposite directions in order to maintain joint congruency. Correct. Same knee, except now I'm coming from a knee extended or knee flex position, knee extended position by moving the tibia, open or closed chain, open chain, good. 
and I have a relatively concave tibial surface on the convex femoral surface. So I'm going to have concave on convex roll and slide in the same direction. So taking it from generic joints to the knee joint, and then depending whether it's open or closed chain, the joint surfaces that are moving are going to dictate how the roll and slide or the roll and glide act relative to one another. Combining things together, everybody? Okay. Now the reason that these things happen, like I said before, is because you don't want your joints to dislocate every time you try and move. So you want to provide joint stability in some capacity. Um, joint stability is the inherent anatomical relationship between two joint surfaces and within a certain range of motion there's areas that are more stable and areas that are less stable. So as I go throughout a range of motion, some points in those range of motion my joint is more stable and some point my joint is less stable. And that's due to the amount of bony contact and the amount of passive tension within the joint capsule and the ligaments around that joint. So the closed pack position of any joint is a position where there is maximal congruency of the joint surfaces. So the distal segment and the proximal segment have maximal congruency and that's also associated with a high level of tensile forces in the joint capsule and the ligaments. So they're stretched in order to provide a compressive force to those joint surfaces, increasing the joint congruency or the anatomical relationship of those two joints. Close pack position, all right. So it's joint surfaces line up the best and there's passive tension in the joint capsule and ligaments which help to reinforce that joint congruency or the compressive force of the joint. And then by definition, an open pack position is any position which is not in maximal joint congruency. Now this will come into play a lot um, when we go into musculoskeletal and we talk about doing manual therapy um, and joint mobilizations. Um, but for now, closed pack versus open pack. Closed pack, not a lot of translation is going to occur in closed pack. Open pack, more translation is going to occur. So your closed pack position again, joint position places maximal tension in the joint capsule and ligaments, therefore providing maximal joint congruency and provides passive stability to the joint. So in your closed pack position, you have a stable joint which allows for minimal translation to occur there. So your closed pack position is your position of stability. Your open pack positions, again, is going to be any position which is not closed pack. Um, and so you're going to have some translations that can occur there because you're not going to have maximal congruency. Now, some people refer to that open pack positions by definition is any position that's not closed pack, but what they're actually referring to is the loose pack position. And that's the position where there's minimal joint congruency of the joint surfaces, which means that a lot of translation can occur at that point. So loose pack position is when there's the most amount of translation and the least amount of stability at the joint, or the most amount of instability at the joint. Closed pack, very stable. Loose pack, relatively unstable. Closed pack, minimal joint translation. Loose pack, 
maximal joint translation. <coughs> Some people refer to open pack and loose pack as the same. That's not technically true. Open pack, like I said, is technically any position that's not closed pack, um, but they're referring to the loose pack position, meaning that maximal translation, minimal stability. your loose pack position, you're going to have minimal passive tension uh, on the joint ligaments and the joint capsule. And this is going to allow passive accessory movements to be performed at the joint due to the lack of tension in the capsule. Accessory movements are translations performed by an external force, which are going to be you guys, the therapist. So you can just substitute translation here, which allows passive translation at the joint due to lack of tension in the ligaments. That's just what we talked about. Accessory movements are just the translations performed by us, by clinicians therapist, etc. One thing that is going to be confusing and there's no way around it is that just like open pack and loose pack, physical therapists use the same idea and they always have multiple terms that are associated with it. So I will try to give you the definitions like I did here and say this is the same as this and this is the same as this, like closed chain is weight bearing. Loose pack is open pack as best as I can. Um, and if things seem to make sense and I didn't say that, bring it up to me and I'll announce it to everyone because there's lots of terminology that overlaps. It means the same thing but isn't the same words because I don't really know why. But it happens a lot in PT, so we'll try and describe it to you as best we can using the terms that are commonly used in the clinic. Okay, so we're gonna step away from kinematics for a bit. Is everybody okay with kinematics? Now we're going to talk about kinetics. Again, so there's going to be forces. And it's a branch of mechanics which describes the effect of forces on a body. And by a body, I can mean your whole body, or I can mean a part of your body, your arm, or your leg, or your hand, or your finger. So a body doesn't mean the human body. It just means a segment of your body, or it can mean the whole body. So you just have to look at the context to see what we're, what we're referring to. A force is any push or pull that can produce, stop, or modify movement. So if I want to move something, I need a force to do that. If I want to stop something from moving, I need a force to do that. If I want to change the direction something is moving, I need a force to do that. A little bit of math. Force is equal to mass times acceleration. And your units on that are kilograms, meters per second squared, which is a Newton for Sir Isaac Newton. The skinny and sometimes fat dude. Um, Forces can produce the following effects on the human body. They can move the body, they can stabilize the body, or they can deform and injure the body. Very simply, they can do all of these three things. And when all forces are equal on a body, it's in a state of equilibrium. And the majority of the time, forces acting on our body, if you're healthy, you're not injured, are in a relative state of equilibrium. It's when forces exceed that, you get tackled by a 300-pound football lineman. Um, Forces are probably not equal there, and so you're not in a state of equilibrium, and therefore, you can get hurt. <clears throat> or at least bruised up a little bit. So there's different types of forces. You guys have probably seen this before, but I'm going to go over it anyways. So tension is just what? A pulling force, right? So we're separating here. We're pulling there. Compression is just the opposite of that. So forces coming into one another. A bending force is going to be acting, so this is going to be my concave surface and my convex surface. I'm going to have a compressive force on my concave surface and a distractive force on my convex surface. 
as I go to bend something, is everyone okay with that? I can have a shear force, which are two forces in the opposite direction, parallel to one another, but not in the same plane. Was that quick enough? So two forces in opposite directions, parallel to one another, but not in line with one another. So they're acting at different levels, not in the same plane. And then I can have a torsional force, which is just a twisting. Everyone okay with the different types of forces? Okay. So when I'm trying to measure the effective forces on the body or measure forces, there's different, again, this is all terminology stuff, termi terminology that's applied to that. Um, and in deformation or strain, um, is what we're going to refer to now. So externally applied forces or loads may cause an ob object to undergo translation or rotation. So that would be anatomical movement that we talked about before. Um, but they can also cause an internal effect on the object or the body. So they can affect your joint. And this is known as deformation. And they can affect the tissues around your joint, the ligaments, the capsule, the muscles. Um, and this is known as deformation. And deformation is the local shape change that an object may undergo when it's subjected to external forces. So it's going to be the change in shape of some tissue, muscle, tendon, ligament, bone, cartilage, that happens when you apply a force to it. The amount of force is measured by what is known as strain. And there's normal strain, which is tensile and compressive. So normal strain is pulling or pushing and shear strain, um, which your body usually is not well adapted to deal with shear strain. And Dr. Williams will talk about that quite a bit within tissue mechanics, but I'll go into these more specifically. So strain is the ratio of tissues to form length relative to its original length. So here I have some generic tissue. It really looks like a white square, but it's actually some sort of anatomical tissue. We'll call it muscle for this example, and it has a normal length. So this is the resting length of that muscle, x, whatever x is. I'm going to apply a force to it. What force is that? That's a tensile force because you're pulling two, the two ends apart. So it's a tensile force that's applied. And so now my original length is increased by some additional length, y. So the length after deformation is x plus y, and strain is going to be the new length over the original length. So it's the ratio of the new length of that tissue over the original length of that tissue. Um, so strain is going to be defined as x plus y divided by x. So it's just the ratio of the new length over the old length. <clears throat> so strain is just trying to measure the effect the force has on a tissue by looking at the deformation that occurs within that tissue. Everybody okay there? Stress um, is dissimilar. That's the force per unit area, and that depends on the types of tissue and the types of forces applied to a tissue. So it's not like studying for this exam, which I'm hoping is stressful. I'm not hoping is stressful. I'm hoping these lectures prepare you fully for all examinations. Um, so it's a different type of stress, but it's the force per unit area. So you're looking at uh, an area measurement as well. And if you look at different types of stress, so we're looking at the amount of force over the volume of which that is applied. So you can have a confining stress, 
in which case stresses are equal from all directions. So you have, it's like a compressive force, but it's compressive force from all different directions, so it's known as confining force. You can have a tensional stress, and again, this can be tension just like it is before, but it's gonna be relative to the size of the object applied to which that tension is being applied to. Compression the same, and shear stress, um, opposite directions, parallel to one another, but not in the same plane as shown there. Everybody okay with the types of stress? So now I want you guys to give me some examples anatomically of these different types of stresses. So how can we get attentional stress in some anatomical tissue? Okay, so what does that do? So yeah, you're stretching a muscle. So you're pulling two ends apart, right? So you're taking your joint to an end range of motion, which causes a tensile stress on the muscle that is being lengthened. What about compression stress? Okay. So in your knee joint, like you take a step, what happens when you take a step? It compresses. What causes it to compress? Gravity. Gravity and? And your weight. So the weight of your body, when I step on my leg, is going to compress my knee joint. What specifically in my knee joint? What anatomical tissues compress? Meniscus. Meniscus? What else? Um, he said ACL and PCL. Probably not. They're going to have a... It's going to be a compressive force, but they're actually going to decrease the tension on them because they're going to bring their joint surfaces closer together. So it's kind of, but not quite. Yes, the femur and the tibia. So your bones are going to compress also, right? You don't really think about the bones as having a whole lot of compression associated. They don't have a lot, but they do have some. So your bones are going to compress as well. Now, if you had osteoporosis, they're going to compress more. Um, so that may be helpful to think about. If your bones are weaker or um, spongier, then they're going to compress more than they're brittle. But we try to think of them as we normally think of them as not compressing, but they do compress a little bit. What about shear stress? I was thinking of like a football player coming over and hitting the side of your knee. Okay. And then like an MCL tear. Okay, so. I'll buy that. So if we're looking at a shear stress to the knee, what he's saying here is you have your relatively stable femur, and a football player comes and hits the lateral aspect of the tibia is an example, and it forces that tibia one way and the femur is going the other way. So it's a shear stress. Again, forces in opposite directions occurring in a tissue. So it could occur to what tissues would be affected there? Let's say MCL, but that would probably be tensile. That would be a tensile force. So if he had, if he had an injury that caused the uh, MCL to stretch, that would be a tensile force. But there's shear forces occurring at the joint to what tissues? Cruciate ligaments, again, it's probably going to be a tensile force because you're going to be taking those two uh, joint surfaces away from one another. What do you guys talk about for with compression? Meniscus. meniscus, right. So the meniscus are going to have shear forces applied to them, which can tear the tissue of the meniscus. And then what about an anatomical confining stress? Swimming. Swimming. How do you say that, Agra? And if you're in water, especially if you're completely submerged, you have the pressure of the water confining you on all sides. Okay, I'll buy that. So when you're underwater, 
there's pressure of the water which is different than the pressure of the air and different than the pressure of your body and so that pressure is going to be applied to all different sides of your body. Good example. Any questions on anatomical stresses? <clears throat> so we talked about different stresses. Now we're going to talk about, just as an example, the stress within your bone. And what this graph is showing is the maximal amount of stress capability within bone. So bone is good at resisting compression which is good because when we walk, we like to have something firm to help us push off of. So it's good at resisting compression. It's fairly good at resisting tension. Why would it be good at resisting tension? Why does that help us throughout our daily lives? What anatomically, why would a bone have to resist tension? We don't usually pull our bones apart, right? Exactly, so muscle contraction. When the muscle pulls on that bone tissue, it's gonna have to, Utilize that pull to move the segment of the bone that you're trying to move. So the tensile force is used to move your joints throughout range of motion. <clears throat> and it's not so good at shear forces. So when a big football player, two guys hit me, and one guy hits me here, and one guy hits me here, I break some stuff. Let me do that up here. One guy hits me here, one guy hits me here, I break stuff in here. Because it's not so good at shear. Um, so it's good at compression, bad at resisting shear, and that's pretty common among most tissues within the body. Um, bone compression, all tissues have some normal loading, which occurs through use. So like I said, we don't think about the bone as compressing, but it does every time we stand on it, just a very little bit. Um, and some deformation is normal and will accompany normal loading. So if your body is used to doing hurdles. You're used to going fast up and over those hurdles. Your body is going to accompany that. Whereas if someone um, who is, has a bone disease and is okay with walking but can't run because their bone can't handle that compressive load, they're certainly not going to be able to handle running hurdles. So there's some sort of normal loading that can occur and that can um, vary depending on your activities. Now, if I want to increase the compression on my bone in standing, how can I do that? You can jump or you can gain weight, right. Either one of those. So you can either have a higher force or put a higher mass upon that. And either of those is going to increase the amount of compression that occurs through my bones. Good. All right, so briefly, here's something, a shape. This force is tensile force. This force is compression. Good deal. So now we're going to talk about the impact forces have on specific tissues um, and materials exhibit three type of elastic behavior by materials we're usually talking about anatomical tissues here there's the modulus of elasticity which is a tensile modulus and that is um, the ratio of the tensile stress over the tensile strain and just bear with me on these definitions I'll give you a graph that will make your life a little bit easier um, you can have the modulus of rigidity, which is the shear modulus, so it's going to be shear stress over shear strain, and then Poisson's ratio, which is the transverse strain over trans, uh, longitudinal stress. So elasticity is tensile forces, 
Rigidity is shear forces, and then the Poisson effect, which we're not going to talk about anymore, um, is transverse strain over longitudinal strain. And what that is, is when I apply a tensile force here, a tensile, excuse me, tensile strain, as I pull on this original green box, as I apply the forces which are transverse, it's going to make it shorter in this direction and longer in this direction. Cameron, kind of see that? Okay, so that's Poisson's effect. We're not going to talk about that anymore. Um, we're primarily going to talk about the modulus of elasticity because that's most commonly done or referred to with anatomical tissues, which we're focusing on. So the ability of a substance to resist deformation is described by the stress-strain curve for that substance. An example of this, a ligament that is stretched will produce internal tension or resistance to that, which is known as stress, which we talked about already. And the amount of deformation of the ligament we talked about is strain, so we can measure the strain, and the amount of force that's causing it is the stress. Healthy tissues are able to resist changes in their shape. So, like we said, when I take a t uh, muscle and I go to end range, I'm going to stretch that muscle, but it's healthy, there's no problem. It can change its shape and it's not going to be an issue. You put your arm back and it's going to have no problem. It's going to go on and function as it did before. Now, unhealthy tissues is a different story, but we're going to stay with healthy tissues for now. And then Dr. Williams, when he talks about tissue mechanics, will go into um, healthy and pathological tissues and differences between those. So this relationship being plotted on a graph, which we'll talk about, and this stress-strain curve, which is going to be plotted that we will talk about, is going to vary for different substances. So depending on the anatomical tissue that we're talking about, a ligament is going to behave differently than a muscle is going to behave differently than cartilage is going to behave differently than bone is going to behave. Because they're all made up of different components of the different matrices that make them up. So they're not all the same constituent and the same percentage of constituents that make them up. All the ingredients in those are a little bit different in their percentages, so they're going to react differently. Um, in addition, for viscoelastic materials, which most anatomical tissues are, the stress-strain curve will vary according to the force's duration and the rate of loading. So how long is it applied and how quickly is it applied? And we'll talk about that also. So here we have the stress-strain curve for tensile loading of a ligament. And I have a little bit, let's see here. I got another video here. Maybe not, I do. Do I have audio? is located in the center of the knee along with the posterior cruciate ligament or PCL. These ligaments wrap tightly around the femur and the tibia of the leg to form a crisscross pattern in the knee which prevents the joint from moving too far forward or backward. Injuries to the ACL are usually sports related. However, a torn, stretched, or ruptured ACL can also be caused by repetitive physical stress such as excessive pivoting or twisting of the knee. ACL injuries generally cause swelling, stiffness, and pain. Many times a noticeable popping noise can be heard at the time the injury occurs. So, you guys probably knew some of that and maybe didn't know all the other parts of it. Um, let me see if I can get that to reload. Where was it? 
All right, well, what I was attempting to show you was the fact that when the tibia translated anteriorly, there was a tensile force on the ACL. Can you picture the video? And then they had a tearing of the ACL. Um, so there's a tensile force associated with that. And that tensile force can be depicted by this graph. So as I start to load that ligament, by load the ligament, I mean apply a tensile force to that ligament, there's going to be some force, so this is going to be strain, this is going to be the distance, which that is the length changes, right? So increasing here is increasing length of your tissue, and then stress is going to be the amount of force causing that length change. So stress increases, or force to cause that change increases is on your y-axis, and length or strain is going to be on your x-axis. So initially, there's some force associated with increasing the length of that ACL. So my ACL gets a little bit longer here, and there's a small amount of force associated with that. That would be the normal loading that occurs probably when you walk down the street, um, when you stand up and sit down. There's going to be a little bit of tension applied to your ACL. There's normal. Um, there's no problem with that. And that's known as the toe region. Um, and there's a little bit of stress associated with a small amount of strain. So you have a small amount of force causing a small amount of displacement or change in length in that ACL. As the force increases, the amount of length change that you're going to see in at ACL is going to increase. And that's going to increase essentially in a linear relationship until some point in time. And any force that's applied before this cutoff here, which is known as the elastic zone, the sort of pinkish reddish area, when you take that force away, there's going to be no change in the length of the ACL once that force is released. So up until here, you can apply force and you're going to have some deformation. The ACL is going to get longer. A force that's increasing to this point is going to be applied. If you take that force away, the length of the ACL will go back to where it started without any problems. Once you get beyond that, you see it's no longer a linear relationship because these lines um, isn't straight anymore, so it's no longer a linear relationship. And you get into what's known as the plastic zone. So you're continuing to increase the amount of force and the, increase the length of the ACL, and it's starting to change the relationship of those tissues. It's starting to tear that ACL a little bit. And so when I take the force away within the plastic zone, my ACL doesn't return to its initial shape. It returns to a different deformed shape, lengthened. It's longer than it was originally because the forces that were applied are so great and the stretch or the deformation of that ACL was so great that it couldn't overcome that. So that's going to be a partial tear of your ACL. And then at some point in time, indicated by this dashed line, the force is going to be so great and the length change is going to be so great that I have continued tearing until I have ultimate failure, and that's a full tear of your ACL. And then there's no longer going to be any strain because you're going to have two halves that aren't having any tensile forces applied across them. So this is a stress-strainous curve for a tensile loading of a ligament. I'll see if I can play that video again. And think about when they show the translation, the how it relates to the graph that we just talked about. It's located in the center of the knee along with the posterior cruciate ligament or PCL. 
These ligaments wrap tightly around the femur and the tibia of the leg to form a crisscross pattern in the knee, which prevents the joint from moving too far forward or backward. Injuries to the ACL are usually sports-related. So However, it's gonna, a tensile force or ruptured ACL can also be starting on that graph. Physical plastic stress, zone tear. Such as excessive pivoting. As it goes up the graph, it lengthens, and then ACL it ruptures. injuries generally cause swelling, stiffness, and pain. Many times, a noticeable popping noise can be heard at the time the injury occurs. Does that help to see? Stretch out the ligament, tensile forces. This is what happens based on the amount of strain and stress associated with the tensile force on that ligament. So there's five zones. There's the toe region. There's a slight stretch produced with minimal tension and a non-linear relationship. So that's what we talked about here. Minimal tension, non-linear relationship. You're just sort of applying a little bit of a stretch to that ligament. It doesn't change the length of it too much. The elastic zone increasing stress and strain are present in a linear relationship like we talked about. The tissue can return to its original shape when the force is removed. That's fine. Your ACL is doing what it's supposed to do. It's limiting the translation that occurs at the knee, um, but it's not tearing any of the fibers associated with that or stretching any of those fibers associated with that. In an elastic material, the ratio of stress to strain is measured at stiffness, and that's xy, excuse me, y over x on the graph. So stiffness is going to be essentially the uh, slope of that line, which is y over x, and that's known as the stiffness when it's measured within the elastic zone or when it has that linear relationship. And the stiffness of the tissue is going to depend on the properties of what that tissue is. So a muscle is going to have different stiffness than a bone, than a ligament, and so on. Zone C, plastic zone, the tissue continues to elongate while there's only a slight increase in tension. Uh, there's microscopic tissue failure, so this is going to be a stretching of the tissue. Does not return to its original shape when the force is removed. It is permanently deformed. Sounds bad. Zone D, point of initial failure. So that's going to be zone D, that's your initial failure. You can see the tissue is no longer resisting the forces that are applied to it. Zone E is complete failure. So we're down here, complete failure. Two separate halves, or two separate components of that ligament. So the plastic zone, it's not a tear, it's just... The plastic zone, it is not, it's an elongation, it's probably a partial tear. I would say it's like a stretching or a partial tear. And so is the D still a partial tear? Would D, D would still be a partial tear, but it's gonna be a higher grade partial tear, so more tissue involvement. And then once you get down to here, then it's full tear, yeah. So if you guys, we'll talk about grades of ligament injuries, but this is probably going to be a grade one injury, grade two ligament injury, and then grade three, which is a full tear. So if you see football lineup reports, grade one MCL, grade two MCL, this is usually what they're referring to. Um, tissue elongation. So when we're talking about stretching out tissues, muscles, which we do in the clinic quite a bit, muscles and tendons, ligaments, they can be elongated through processes known as creep or stress relaxation. And most commonly it's done through a combination of these, but we're gonna talk about them independently, appreciating the fact that they occur simultaneously most of the time in the clinic. 
And when you have a creep elongation, you have a constant load, which is applied to the tissues. And when you have a stress relaxation, you have a constant deformation applied to those tissues. And I'll give you guys some clinical examples to help out with this. So here we have an individual who is unable to straighten their knee. So this is known as a knee flexion contracture. This is the end range of extension that they have. So maybe they had a knee replacement and they can't get full extension of their knee. So this is the total amount of extension that they have available in their knee. If you can't fully extend your knee, it's hard to walk without a very noticeable limp. And that's a big deficit, 30 degrees or whatever. So that's a big deficit in knee extension. So we want to help that person get as much knee extension range of motion as possible so they can walk without you know, quasi-modal and kind of thing. So one way to do that is we can apply a creep principle and apply a constant load. So what you see in this picture, there's an ankle weight on this individual's ankle, which is helping to pull their knee into extension. That load, the amount of mass and the amount of weight in that ankle isn't going to change. So you have a constant load, which is described here. So you apply that load. So here they are in this position, and you apply the load, and the load does not change. And then we take the load off, the load's not there anymore. So you have a constant load. Now the strain, again, this is gonna be the deformation of the tissues, so we're looking at whatever tissues are inhibiting that knee going into extension, maybe hamstring tightness, maybe posterior joint capsule tightness, and maybe scar tissue, who knows what's limiting um, that knee going into full extension, but there's going to be some strain associated with that which is dependent on the load which is applied. And it's going to decrease when that load is taken away. So creep is a constant load, meaning that that load, the weight that we put on there doesn't change. That's all it is. Stress relaxation is a little bit different than that. So stress relaxation, you tend to use um, serial casting or a brace such as this. And this brace, this individual doesn't have, we'll say elbow flexion, so they can't flex their elbow beyond this point. So what we do with this brace, this is kind of gruesome and a little bit nasty. Um, so you put the brace on the individual and then you have a couple people that are big and strong and they flex that individual's elbow as much as they possibly can. So they're stretching it out, they're applying supra um, physiologic forces, so much stronger than that individual can do. So if I can only bend my elbow to 90 degrees, give or take, I get two therapists and they can bend it to 100. What they do is they lock that brace in at 100 degrees. So they have a constant deformation. They have a constant change in that individual's elbow flexion angle. Um, and because of that, you're gonna apply a continuous stress to those tissues. So the change in the strain is gonna be the change in that individual's range of motion. So here, that individual has 90 degrees elbow flexion. We apply super physiological forces, two big therapists, making that elbow go into more flexion. We lock it in that position, and that position does not change. So this is 90 degrees, this is 100 degrees. And it's held at 100 degrees until the tissues adapt. And the tissues adapt by stretching. And so the stress on those tissues initially is going to be really high. It's going to be painful. It took two therapists, three therapists to get them to that increased range of motion value. That stress is going to be high. And then as their body adapts to it, 
that stress is going to go down. So the stress is going to relax, or the stress is going to go down, based on by that permanent change in the strain. Does that make sense? So when you guys are trying to improve someone's range of motion in the clinic, you can do it this way, you can do it this way, and most commonly it's a combination of those two together. Are there any questions?